welcome to Grace Life Church Podcast. If you would like any more information about us, please visit our website, gracelife.com.au. So how are y'all doing? Good. We say y'all Texas, so I haven't lost that. Um, Andrew and I, we uh, have so loved being in Australia. Sorry. Is that good? I'm centered. Yep, okay. So we've really loved being in Australia over this last year. Um, we're trying to figure out what we identify now as. Um, we've always said we're Texans, so we're trying to make a new thing called like Textralian. We're trying to make that something. Um, but we've really loved being here in your land and with your people. We have four children. They are 10, 8, 4, and almost 2. And yeah, we've been on a pretty radical journey over this last year. Um, we've been in full-time ministry for over a decade. And uh, when the Lord told us to give away everything and go, we said, yes, where? At Australia, we said, okay, what? And he said, I'm not going to tell you to get there. And we're like, oh, my goodness, this is a little bit scary. And so after 15 years of marriage, as you can imagine, uh, we had built up a lot of stuff. And kind of in America, we have this thing called the American dream. And so we had the big house and the big cars and all the nice stuff. And we had always um, had a message that we carried about complete surrendered God opens a door for amazing adverse. And we'd always talked about this for over a decade. And now the Lord was saying, hey, I don't want you to talk about it anymore. I actually want you to walk it. I want you to live in that space. And so that was a pretty radical thing for us to just give everything that we had accumulated away and then to come without a plan. Um, Andrew and I are both plants and we like to know what we're doing. And so, yeah, we kind of came and just like, right, Lord, we're just going to show up as missionaries and come alongside churches and ministries. And just to see the faithfulness of the Lord, I could talk all morning about amazing things we've seen and experienced over this last year. But I do have a message uh, that I'm carrying that I'm excited to share with us this morning. And um, my message is titled, First Love First. And so we'll be actually in the book of Revelation. Um, if you speak before, many people laugh about this, but I love Song of Songs and the book of Revelation. Yes, I, I am that girl. Um, and a little bit about my story. I'm not going to get into that too much today, but um, I was, my mom got pregnant with me as a young teen, and so at three years old, my dad left, and I just experienced a lot of pain, a lot of shame, a lot of abuse as a young person. I did not have this beautiful, wonderful life. There was a lot of messed up stuff, as you can imagine. I grew up in poverty. We were homeless for much of my life, and so growing up in that and not growing up in a Christian home, I was atheist, and as a teenager, I radically encountered the Lord, and he took me from being what I call the unwanted orphan to give me a song of being the beloved daughter. And so I really found myself and my identity in the Song of Songs. So if you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Go read it. <laughs> it's a beautiful story. I live in the Passion Translation especially. But right now I'm kind of on edge in between there and the book of Revelation. And um, this morning we'll be talking out of Revelation 2, verses 2 through 5. And I'm actually going to be reading out of the Passion Translation. The reason for that is I was... 15 years in ESV, the NIV, the NLT, the NKV, whatever you call it, you know, and it just had kind of lost its awe and wonder. And so by switching up translation, something as simple as that, the word of God is fascinating again, and it's doing again, and it's stirring me in a way that it hasn't in some time. And so I'm really on a fun journey right now with the Lord, and so I'm excited to invite you guys into that. And so today, again, we'll be talking about first love first. And if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, just to give you some context, um, basically the disciple John caught up in, 
in a vision and encounter experience. We don't fully know, and we know from chapter one that he sees Jesus not as he was when he met him, but as he is now in all of his glory, you know, with the white hair, the face shining brighter, the sun, the eyes of fire, he's holding stars in his right hand. If you're not familiar, please go read it. Very exciting. And so John has this radical encounter with the Lord. His body couldn't handle what he was seeing so much so that it says he fell as though he did. It was so overwhelming seeing like this cosmic glory of the Lord. It's like he died. And so in that moment, Jesus comes and he lays it on him. And in his tender voice tells him, John, do not be afraid. And so even though John in that moment might not have recognized Jesus, that Jesus in all of his glory, he did recognize his touch. He did recognize his voice. And so we're going to be picking up in chapter 2. But at this point, Jesus has asked John to write a letter to the church of Ephesus. So the church of Ephesus is very interesting. It's known as the revival church. Paul actually started this church. And so when Paul was there, he was there for three years. Well, if you know anything about Paul, this was very unusual. Paul was a missionary, and he would go places for two weeks, two months, 18 months, never three years. He stayed there three years because of the unusual manifestations of power that was breaking out in Ephesus. So when you read the book of Acts, go to Acts chapter 19, you can read about what church was experiencing. They were really in Bible. There were people giving their heart to the Lord. They were turning from their ways. They were burning magic and idols that totaled about $5 million. You know, the Bible said John preached every single day for three years. The word was going forth in power, and every person in the province of Asia heard the gospel. Now, it doesn't say that they all responded, but they couldn't get away from it. It was like power evangelism. There was something on it, and it's very exciting. Andrew and I read about that church. Like, those are our people. That would be our church. We are convinced of this. And so if Ephesus were here today, to put it into perspective, it would be like the size of New York City, that, kind of that size, but the sin culture and reputa reputation of Las Vegas, but the church culture of the persecuted church in North Korea. Even though they were in revival and they were seeing amazing things, they had heavy persecution, major trials. They were under attack. So even though they were in revi revival, they were seeing all this wonderful stuff, there was a price pay. You know, they were risking their lives for the gospel to go forth. So let's go and read what Jesus had to say to this church. And again, to give you some history, the church now is about 40 years old. Theologians believe that John got caught up in this about 40 years after Ephesus had started. And so we're going to pick up, I think it might be on the screen. Oh, there we go. All right. So starting with verse 2, Jesus is speaking. It says, I know all that you've done for me. You've worked hard and persevered. I know that you don't tolerate evil. You've stood those who claim to be apostles and proved that they are not, for they were imposters. I also know how you have bravely endured trials and persecutions because of my name, yet you have not become discouraged. Just stop there. That right there is an option. Do you not agree? They're standing up to people. They don't compromise. The gospel is going forth. They're being persecuted, and they're not being discouraged. They're brave test those and prove people being imposters. I mean, really cool church. But verse 4 goes on to say, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. Think about how far you have fallen. Repent and do the work of love you did at first. All right, let's talk about what's going on here. I want you to imagine the tone of Jesus' voice, how tender he is in his correction. He's saying, I see you. I see you stand for. I see what you're going through. I see all of that, but this is how you've hurt me. This is what I have against you. You have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. 
if you're taking notes or you have your Bible, that's what we're really going to be focusing on is you have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. So what's John's connection to Ephesus? Well, John, we know, pastored there for a few years. So it was started by Paul, then Timothy came behind him, but then John actually, you know, was a pastor there. And so I'm sure when Jesus, hey, John, I want you to write a letter to Ephesus, he was like, yeah, my church, church family, we're radical, we're known for our passion, our zeal, great love for you. We are like the revival church, the gold standard globally. So he was pretty excited, like grabbed that pen and like, oh, Jesus, let's go. But then he heard what God had to say. I'm sure it caused a lot of confusion because if you know John, John used to be known as the son of thunder, like angry, right? But then he identifies now as the beloved, the disciple whom Jesus loves. And so he's there probably thinking, wait a second, this cannot be right. I have preached 50 sermons on being the beloved, on having this passionate love for Jesus. This is kind of what I'm known for. This is what Arch is all about. But taking a step further, I can't imagine how painful it was being a leader of that church receiving that letter. Again, imagine being a persecuted underground church, risking your life for the gospel to go forth. And Jesus so tenderly said, I see all of this. I see your pain. I see your trials. I see the risk you're taking. But I have this against you. You don't love me like you once did. So what the offense with Ephesus? They were so busy increasing ministries, increasing their influence, but they were not increasing their love for him. The numbers are getting bigger and bigger and more money's coming in and there's buildings and there's revival and there's manifestations and all of this wonderful stuff, all the works of the ministry. But their heart connect was decreasing and it didn't seem to bother them. They didn't even seem to notice. And so one point I want to make here is that love doesn't automatically grow, but it does automatically diminish if you don't create it. You know, when you first become a believer, you have this fire. Eventually, it will dim and it will go out if you keep that fire burning. And so a month ago when I was reading this, Andrew and I do this thing at our house where he will open our family up in prayer and worship and in his secret place with the Lord early, early in the morning. But I'm not a morning person. He actually calls me a night ninja. I get, like, really hyper at night. I don't know if anybody can relate with that, but, like, around 9 o'clock at night, I have this, like, second wind. And it's about 1030 on a Friday night a month ago, and I'm having my quiet time. I'm reading these scriptures, and I've read them many, many times before. But this was different. It was like the words of Jesus were coming off the page. It was piercing my heart. It felt so personal. It felt Jesus was actually saying this to me in that moment. I actually, at one point, I didn't even look at my Bible. It was so confronting. It was like I couldn't, couldn't even see it. I felt it. It felt so personal. I felt Holy Spirit saying, Ashley, I see all you've done. I see what you stand for and what you're going after. I see the sacrifice that you've made. It's amazing. I see how you're raising your kids and what your family is doing, and I love it. But this is how you've hurt me. You don't love me like you once did. You know, the words in there we have to understand is like red letter Jesus. Does anyone have that kind of Bible? It's like undiluted Jesus. It's so confrontational. It's so in your face. It's not an interpretation. It's actually how he feels. And it's so confronting, but yet so tender, so loving. And we know he looks like when he's saying this. We talked about it. You know, all of his glory, but yet so tenderly confronting us. But, you know, me personally, as I was it, the thing that stood out to me the most was those words, you've abandoned your first love. That hurt me deeply because I was abandoned as a girl. And I don't abandon people. I am real. I, I stick around. I'm a loyal friend. I don't abandon. And here, my precious Jesus, who I found a home in, who I'm the beloved daughter, he is saying, you've abandoned your first love. You don't love me like you used to. And that hurt me. And so, again, for me, as I was reading this a month ago, I just was like, 
what, where, what, what has happened? What is first love anyways? So I started writing some things down because what I felt in that moment was Jesus wasn't discounting my real love. It's there. There's depth there. He knows that I love him, but I don't in the passionate way that I used to. And I went back and started looking up like this first love. And some things I've down is first love is all in, heart aligned, vulnerable givenness. It's vibrant, trusting, fiery, unafraid, passionate, heart alive kind of love. Would you guys agree? Like first love. That's what first love feels like. It's what it looks like. And I remember when I were dating, um, we're kind of high sweethearts. We met a week of high school. And um, he lived in Missouri and I Georgia. And that's like it's our drive. So he played college football. And we had to see each other a lot because between studies and football, we just didn't have a lot of time. So we talked on the phone time hours on hours a day and at night we would be exhausted need to go to sleep but we would do thing like you hang up no you hang up you counted three and then neither of us would hang up I don't know if any relate but we didn't end up falling asleep on and even if it was just a 24-hour period him or I would fly see each other just because we had to see each other's face and I remember my grandpa likely that is so reckless that's responsible you're wasting all your money at your job to go see this boy you were in first love it was reckless and it was and it's just what it looked like, you know? And so I remember when we first got married, um, Andrew and I, we were at a fancy restaurant at the beach, and there's all these other couples around, and our waitress came up to us to take her, and we're just looking at each other and talking. She's like, are you guys newlyweds? And I remember looking at her like, how do you know? You're just like, I can tell. And I'm like, oh, okay, it must be something about my face that gives it away, right? And so we're talking to her. She said, well, enjoy it while it lasts. It's just the honeymoon season and walks away. Andrew and I, as 20-year-old couple, we're like, wait a second. What? We didn't get that. What is she talking about? And it really stirred us. And we look on the room at all of the other couples that have been married probably 5, 10, 20, 30, 40. And they're looking at phones, out the window, looking around the room. Or maybe they're in a real intense conversation. But they didn't have that first love kind of look. And I remember us saying, like, we want to get to that point. We want what we have right now, always. And so whenever... I was reading these words. The thing that stood out to me is being the loving correction. I actually saw a promise. See the promise there? First love is possible. It's possible. And he wants to have it from the beginning to the end. Always. It's not for a season. It's not for the honeymoon season. It's all possible. First love never meant to be first love. It's just love. It's just love. What love looks like. It's irrational. It's reckless. You should look. You're in first love. And when you're not, he has to do with it. You know, I mentor some young girls, um, and one thing that they say to me many times is they'll say, you know, the dream of my heart at my spiritual journey is to just encounter the Lord and be so overcome by it that I just have amazing encounters, and there's closeness and inspiration. And every time I'm like, oh, that's amazing. I love that. What are you doing with it? And they look at me like, what are you talking about? I just said I want the Holy Spirit to overcome me. And I'm like, right, but Paul says, set your heart to limb. That's something you have to do. That's something I have to do. If we want inspiration and closeness and honor, we have to cultivate a passionate love for him. He has our attention, he has our gaze, he has our action. We are pursuing him with a first love kind of love. Why is this such a big deal to just, because where first is lacking, there is no power. Where first lacking, there is no power. People will see a busy church. They'll see a busy believer, a.k.a. the bride of Christ, a busy bride. They won't see a lovesick bride. They won't see a believer with that first love and on fire with passion, set a flame for the world, shining, radiant. They won't see the best version of yourself. So if you're here today, you're listening to me just like, I hear you, Ash, but right now I'm a hard season. I'm in a winter season. I 
can understand where you're at because I had one of those seasons that lasted three years. And many times when you're in a painful season, someone up here talking about love and passion for Jesus, all this wonderful stuff, it's really hard to hear when life hurts, when life is painful. And when I was in that place, I would have put my hand up and say, Jesus, I need a path. I need a path. For three years, I went through a season where I felt overlooked, undervalued. I went from two to four kids in 18 months having heart issues, and I was hooked up monitors for two years. I went to bed every night wondering, am I going to wake up tomorrow? I almost lost my son, Lawson, to a girl seizure. We moved across the country, new job, new friends, betrayed by other friends. Life was really, really painful. It was really hard. I wasn't sleeping. And my family, as you can imagine, is messed up, and so there's not a lot of support there. And if I heard a message like today, I would say, I need a pass. And I totally understand and would say, yes, you deserve a pass. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if it's health issues, family issues, financial issues, but I'm right there with you. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't do that. You look what he says to Ephesus. He says, I see your trials. I see your pain. I see the persecution. But I have this against you. Why? Why is it such a big deal to him? I'll tell you, when I was in her and I didn't know if I was going to make it, Physically, I didn't know if I was going to make spiritually. I came to a place of desperation where I had to dig down roots to find Jesus. I literally said, Jesus, I'm not going to make it unless I find you. And as I found him and as I pursued him, I had a suddenly, I had a breakthrough. When I found myself in first love, that was actually my superpower. That was actually where I got on the other side. And the reason that Jesus says, I'm sorry, I can't give you a pass, is because he knows it's your answer to get out of where you are. You have to get in that place. You have to find him. He has to have your attention. Because you will get that suddenly. You will make it. You will get on the other side. He wants to help us return to passionate first love. And it's not that hard. I love the instructions. If you go back and look, he said, repent, you know, and to remember and to act. And so the call to response is remember. Remember what first love looked like. Remember what first love like. You know, and as I was on journey with him, I was encountering my living room floor, and I'm in tears, and I'm like, how did I get to the place, Jesus? You know that I love you. And he wanted me to remember. And I'm like, all right. When I first got saved, the thing that threw me the most was I had a family. You know, I got to be a dad girl for the first time in my life. And I was so excited about having church family. I could, it, it, like, blew my mind. When I go back and I read my journals from being an 18-year-old, it's so funny to see the things that, like, really amazed me and really stirred me. And it's crazy to think how familiar I've gotten in my spirituality. Like, I've gotten too familiar with Jesus. He doesn't fascinate me like he once did. And he has an issue with that. And so as I'm remembering, I'm remembering what it felt like. I'm remembering how it felt to be chosen and loved and actually liked, even in my mess. And so if you're sitting here today, you're like, wow, I haven't been in that place and for love and that passionate for Jesus in maybe a year, maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10, 20, 30, 40 years. It feels like it was so long ago. Can I just encourage you right now that to the Lord, a thousand years is a day, right? So for us, we may be like, that's so far away. And the Lord's like, no, I need you to remember. That was just a minute ago. That was just a moment ago. You were right there with me. You were marked with first love. I need you to remember. I need you to go back there. So repent, he says. We don't like to talk about this a lot. But it's actually sin not to be first love. It's not just a week. It's a sin. And so he says, and all that means is to change your mind, to abandon your former way of thinking, to apologize. And for me, I'm such a daddy's girl. I'm like, Lord, I am so sorry. I don't know how I got to this place. It was a slow fade. Because I love you, I was doing all this stuff, but I wasn't giving you. 
first love first. It wasn't the priority. And repent. Change your mind. Realign your thinking. Number three, he says, act. Do the things you did at first. How did you worship in the beginning when you got saved? Do you remember? Do you remember what that looked like? Were you like just worshiping and dancing and proclaiming abandonment? Were you on your face and your tears? Were you on your knees? What did it look like? Just do that again. You know, what did you pray like? Big one. You know, I know for me, I prayed like, gosh, the thing is too big for my God. Andrew and I, I mean, we'd go into St. Louis in the inner city, and we'd find prostitutes. And I remember this one time, there was a lady with a tumor on her neck. And we were just praying for God to heal her. And we took her to the hospital. And I remember our pastor called us the next day. And he's like, you know that prostitute you prayed for? And we're like, yeah. He's like, they hands on her, and they were going to do the next day. But the tumor disappeared. And for two 19-year-old new believers, we were like, oh, my gosh. God, you're amazing. You're so wonderful. And so when he says, remember, it's many times... I love the phrase even, he goes, think about how far you have fallen. He's not saying it in like, an, we think God is so angry. He's not like, think about how you've fallen. He's very tender. Think about how far you have fallen. Me, I still love Jesus, but am I doing kind of stuff? No. You know, it's like, I have fallen away. I have this proximity issue, and it's been a slow fade. It wasn't on purpose. You know, and so he wants us to return to that place of first love. We're called to be radical lovers. We're not called to be busy believers. You know, we're not called to be building all this stuff. We're actually, our calling, our true calling is to be radical lovers. And radical is not doing something for a few months, a few years. It's sustaining a fresh walk with Jesus through the decades, through the decade. You know, when Andrew and I were in youth ministry, um, we'd have students, and they would get, like, sun fire for Jesus, and they'd be so excited, and during worship, they'd come up to the front and worship. They would pray out loud. They were having all these prayer meetings. There were some older people in our church would say to us, uh, give them time. They'll calm down. And we would be like, young youths, there's 24. And we're like, no, no, we're not okay with that. They are not going to calm down. It's like, when did we agree to this? That is not what it's supposed to be. And so I tell young people all the time, I'm like, when I am 40, I will be more radical than you. And when I am 50, I am 60. And when I am 70, you will not be radical than me. <laughs> that's not going to happen. And that's not the way it would happen. Our fire, we don't just try to keep there. The goal is to grow and grow and grow and expand. And so... That's what we're called to be. You, what you're feeling now, you just got off like this camp, like the camp high, and you're like, I love Jesus. Build on that. Don't go back. Don't let it diminish. Go forward. That. Run with that. Blow upon that fire. You know, I even uh, love just the prayer of like, spirit wind, blow upon me. Hold me down. Don't release me, Lord, until I look and smell and act and think like you. Like, I just want to be so marked with your presence. People are like, you are really peculiar. You are different. And I'm like, good. You should stand out. People should kind of turn that and look at you like, you're different. You are. <laughs> you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be that lovesick bride on fire for Jesus. You're so captivated with him that people are like, oh, I haven't seen that before. And I'll tell you, as a former atheist, the world needs to see it. Because when I was angry, hurt, broken teenage, I could not even fathom a God, especially when identified as a father. Because me, father, represents abandonment and abuse, so many other horrible things. And so people are trying to tell me, oh, God loves you so much and he's a good father. And I'm like, yeah, right. It's he when I went through all this stuff. And I was looking for believers that loved the Lord to look different. I actually expected it. What I found was a bunch of believers, a bunch of teenagers my age, that looked like me, that talked like me. And I measured, like, hey, there's a difference between you and I, except they had works-based obedience or fear-based obedience. When you have love-based obedience, you just do it for love. It's all for love. You're a radical love, and you have a look about. You stand, you look different, and it fires people. And so I was 18. I met a woman, 55 years old, Joe, and she was a radical lover for this. I don't know who was here on the guitar. You remind me of her. 
because I remember being an atheist and so far from God, but there was something woman that just drew me in, and I wanted to get to know her, and as I got to know her, I got to know about her God, and she introduced me to the Father, and I had this radical encounter, and I had questions, hard questions for the Lord, and I said, Lord, where were you in all of my pain and my shame and all of this mess, and he's not afraid of our questions, you know? and it was just so cool how he ministered to my heart, our teacher, and he talked to me about a fallen world where broken people do things that hurt other people. You know, you have robots and pups. They, this free will and where they have a praying mom. I was in bad circumstances. But for me, it was enough to say, hey, Lord, I understand. So gave him all my brokenness, my pain, my shame, the weapons the enemy used against me to destroy me. And what he did, he gave it back to me as a super weapon. And he says, go out in lion's den and the leopard's there and wage war against the enemy. The very thing he tried to use to destroy you, now it's yours. Now you use that. You see, hurtful, they will hurt people. Free people, free people, and healed people, heal people, and what we need in the body of Christ. So I, I joke with my husband all the time. I said, you know, I want to be marked by Mary of Bethany lifestyle. That's what, when people talk about me, I want them to be like, she's not like that Mary of Bethany lifestyle. Business as usual, going through motions of Christianity, not okay with her. She's not the Mary of Bethany lifestyle. And so if I get the worship team come back up. I want to read Luke 10, 39 through 42, and let's just real quickly look at what that lifestyle looks like. Jesus was getting ready to visit Mary and Martha, and you know the story. Martha working around the house. She was doing the rest of the ministry. She's working really hard, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I love um, the part where it talks about Martha out of anger. She's so frustrated. It says she interrupts the Lord. So he was teaching but she's doing all the works of the ministry, and she's burnt out, and she's bored, and she's frustrated, and she's mad. And here's Mary at Jesus' feet. And as she interrupts Jesus, as this isn't fair, you make her help me. And I love the way Jesus, again, especially people, I want you to always hear the way that the Lord talks. He is an angry God. He's not a mean father. He's like this God Almighty. I'm going to bring hell, fire, and brimstone on you. I, so many people, they don't know the voice of God. I want you to hear how he corrects her, how he talks to her. When she just interrupted him in front of people, verse 4, it says, The Lord answered her, Martha, my beloved Martha. Just that rest on you for a minute. Martha, my beloved Martha, why are you so upset and troubled, pulled away by all the many distractions? Are they really that important? How many times are we just pulled away by all the stuff we have to do? We do have to do stuff. But are they really that important? Mary has covered the one thing most important by choosing to sit at my feet. She is undistracted, and I won't take this privilege from her. I just love that so much because Mary is not unaware of what needs to be done. Stuff needs to be done. We're putting first love first. This is the most important she thinks she could be doing. If you before that, it talks about how he was attentive before the mass, absorbing every revelation he shared. He didn't miss a thing. He had her gaze, her attention. It was the most important thing she could be doing in that room, and everything else could wait. That's the Mary Bethany lifestyle. And the Lord's promises that will not be from us. So first love is possible. First love is a promise. It's the best part. And we choose it like Mary. That portion is ours. To keep. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast from Grace Life Church. For more information about us or any of our services, please visit our website at gracelife.com dot a you